Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, before we get the show started, I wanted to let you know we are giving away a bunch of brand new Black Magic gear. Yeah, cameras, switchers, DaVinci Resolve licenses, a bunch of awesome stuff. So stay tuned to learn how you can enter to win free gear from Black Magic, and we're going to tell you all about it later on in this episode. Now, cue the music. Hey everyone, welcome to the 175th episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, screenwriting, and directing. This episode is brought to you by patrons Ben Donovan and Jason Apple. I'm Oren Kaplan. I'm Adam. Today we've got producer Rebecca Green on the show. She's made movies like It Follows and I'll See You in My Dreams, and she started a new website that's future-focused to kind of help share ideas and information about what it takes to be a great producer, and it's called Dear Producer, so dearproducer.com. Yeah, this was an awesome interview. She's like so, so smart about producing independent film, and she came actually from the studio side. She used to work at Lionsgate, so she knows like all about movies and her main message of like knowing why you're making the movie before you're making the movie. It's a message we've heard on the podcast before, but she articulates it like really perfectly and kind of really walks us through why and how you should plan for making an independent film. And it was just a a real illuminating conversation. Um, Not to mention she made like one of my favorite movies, It Follows, which we get into a little bit and like why she fell in love with that movie and uh, really cool. So Rebecca Green. Yeah, this is a special episode. I feel like it might be in my new top 10. She, look, she's so good at not only producing, but talking about what it takes to be a filmmaker. You know, she lectures at places like Film Independent. She's doing panels all over the world. She works for Sundance. She works for Sundance. She's, you know, in the know. So this is a real gem of an episode if you are looking to make an independent film. And if you go to our website, we have all sorts of different tags that kind of like help group the episodes together. I'm going to tag this one, uh, Indie Film Boot Camp. And I'm going to throw a handful of our other favorite episodes, conversations with Liz Manischel, with Emily Best, all of the kind of the primer on uh, everything we've learned about independent film specifically. I'm going to throw that tag on it. So if you want to listen to our indie film specific episodes, that will be a new way to kind of navigate the site. So Indie Film Bootcamp on JustShootItPod.com. And if you've got a favorite episode that relates to independent film, Uh, Hit us up on Twitter. Let us know which ones you'd like to see on that tag. Before we get into the show, we've got Zach Lepofsky. He's the creator of Shotlister, uh, and he's also a filmmaker. He's here to talk to us a little bit more about the Shotlister app. So, Zach, you are the creator. You're the man behind this incredible app, and you're a filmmaker. So you must have 
a specific story. You must have a time when you were like, thank God I invented this app. How did it save the day for you? Well, it's very, that's very true. I actually uh, built the app because I made my very first movie, which was actually an MOW for the sci-fi channel called Tasmanian Devils, but giant men eating Tasmanian Devils. An MOW, for those that don't know, movie of the week. Starring Winnie Cooper from the Wonder Years, killing Tasmanian Devil. We went to college together. It's the best Tasmanian Devil movie ever made. But anyway, every day on that shoot, it was just one of those shoots where everything went wrong every day. And, uh, which I'm very grateful for because no shoot has ever been as bad as that. So, Because you invented Shotlister thereafter. Well, that's very true. I invented it so that I could basically manage all my shots and change the plan because every day the plan would change. And there was this one day where we were supposed to shoot all the stuff with the helicopter because uh, they fly into Tasmania on this helicopter. Because they're daredevils there to see Tasmanian devils get it. Mm-hmm. Anyway. That's uh, pretty good, man. That's pretty but good. But they, you know, on the helicopter day, the helicopter didn't show up. Uh, was it gonna fly in, or were you? No, it was being. It was like it was gonna be on a truck because it wasn't actually a real helicopter. Like all the guts were taken out of it, so you could like, you know, put it on cranes and like swing mm-hmm. it around and stuff, which was our plan until it didn't show up. So then quickly, you know, the crew standing around, and I basically moved all the shots around. I was using a prototype of Shotlister at the time that I had built, and uh, rebuilt a whole schedule from scratch on the day. And, uh, you know, we made our day. We, we went and shot a bunch of inserts that we needed and a bunch of other stuff. And actually, by, like, lunchtime, the helicopter did show up. So then we had to cram. Oh, were you pulling shots, like, from the next day into today? Can you do that in shots? Yeah, exactly. If anyone's used, like, movie magic scheduling for, like, creating a one-liner, it's very similar, but it's for shots instead of scenes. Is there a martini emoji on <laughs> the, the last shot of the day? That's the question. It can actually use any emoji in the keyboard. So, go to town. And how is Winnie Cooper? Was she just, like, showing off her math skills the whole time? <laughs> uh, well, she does save the day with her incredible skills. She takes all the parts of their crash jeep and builds a flamethrower out of jeep parts. Oh, I've done that. And then uses the flamethrower to, you know, roast Tasmanian Devils. And the special effects team actually built the flamethrower out of only jeep parts. What? With a real flame? Well, you know, they put a, they hit a propane tank in the gasoline tank, but it, every sure. every part you could see was from the Jeep. So wow. she's pretty badass in it. But uh, yeah, check out that movie and check out Shalister. Let's say you know fourteen dollars for an app. That's like I need to really like an app to invest that much. Like, is there any way I could preview it for free? Yeah, could you uh, hook us up? Well, <laughs> I'll do you even better than a preview. How about I just give you a free copy and give a copy to anyone who's listening? Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> can't be that can't be true right how could this guy make any money wait but how are you serious how would you get a free how would you give a free copy away basically what we're gonna do is anyone who emails just shoot it pod at shotlister.com uh we're gonna give away 50 copies every month so even if you're listening to this you know 30 years from now email just shoot it pod at shotlister.com and we'll give you a, a free copy as long as we have given away 50 that month but then just email us the next one yeah 30 years from now people are gonna be like wait the biggest podcast of all time has an email address at shotlister what do they have to write in the email? Uh, just let us know what platform you want. Either, you know, Mac OS, iOS, Android, or whatever platform exists 30 years from now. We'll also have that on your holographic display shotlister. We'll, we'll give you a copy of that as well. Um, well, awesome. Well, thanks for talking to us, Zach. And if you have tried out shotlister, send us a picture of yourself using it. Put it on Instagram. Tag us at just shoot a pod. Tag shotlister at shotlister. Uh, and let us know what you think of it. Okay, we are here with Rebecca Green on the mic. 
Hello. Yeah, Rebecca, remind me, where are you in the world? I am home based in Detroit. Um, I actually just got back from Hawaii late last night, though. I was teaching a lab in Hawaii, but technically I'm in Detroit. How is Detroit? I've, I feel like I've always heard that the art scene is about to explode. Um, it has. I mean, it, it, it is. Yeah. I mean, there there is not there's a film community. The state got rid of an incentive several years ago, so it's not quite the same. But um, no, there's a very vibrant arts community. You know, it struggles now because of gentrification, like like most cities, but it's always been thriving. And it's a it's a great place um, for entrepreneurs um, in particular. And, and it's quite a big city. The population isn't huge. It's only about 800,000 in Detroit, but it's quite a vibrant community and it's really a lovely place to work. And have you always been based there or have you done any stints in LA or New York? Yeah, I grew up just outside of Detroit in Dearborn and then I was gone for quite a while. I went to college in North Carolina and and then I spent 12, 13 years in LA. And after we made it follows here in Detroit, um, the script was written for here. And after that, I just started spending more and more time here and decided to move back home and, and work from here. So I've kind of, you know, did that. I, I tell filmmakers who, you know, would like to never go to LA or New York. I said, well, I'm, I was able to leave because I was there for so long, <laughs> um, you know, so, so now I, you know, I, my friends, you know, I've been here about four years. My friends say, no, you haven't. You, you're only here about half the year, you know, because of travel, because I'm not here that much, but you know, so I'm still in other places a lot of the times during the year, but I, like I said, home base is, is here. So. Do you think that for filmmakers that are just starting their career, it matters what city they live in? I do. I mean, I, I kind of preface it by asking, do you want a career? Or do you want it to be a hobby? I guess, you know, I think it's it's about opportunity and how, like what you want your career to look like. You know, it's hard enough to have a sustainable career. Even when you do build out of LA, you can write the most amazing script in the world. But if you don't know who to give it to, what are you going to do? So it's it's more about building a network of people and contacts in order to to get your film made to to build a career and for me it's easier now to kind of make a film from anywhere when i graduated college it was 2001 and we were just starting to use red cameras we didn't have kickstarter you know we didn't we weren't on twitter we were you know it's like i it sounds like i'm dating myself but it, it it wasn't the same and so it's so easy now and i think because it's so easy you don't think about those connections that you need to have in order to have your film seen, even if you can get it made. Um, so it's really, a, to me, it's really about what you want your career to look like. I went to LA out of necessity to get a job because I didn't know how to make a movie right out of college in a no budget kind of way, you know, ultra low budget filmmaking, no budget filmmaking wasn't even really a term at that time. Yeah. Yeah. People, when they said no budget, they meant, you know, Still hundreds of thousands. Hundred, hundred, two hundred thousand. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You know, so it just it just wasn't a thing. And so I just had to get a job. And so I went to LA and I and I started working. I started as a temp at a, as a receptionist. And then my first real job was a, as an assistant at Lionsgate in acquisitions. And so for me, I think, you know, for emerging, you know, out of college, newer filmmakers, I think it benefits you to learn the system, to know how it works, how it operates, who the players are, the hierarchy, you know, just things you just can't learn otherwise. Um, You know, and for me, that was a step that was beneficial to what I'm doing now as a producer that wasn't strategic, um, but absolutely still comes into play, you know, in in producing now. Well, Rebecca, I want to just kind of dig in on that a little bit, because I think a lot of people 
like I'm, I have your bio in front of me. Mm-hmm. Like you, you're so steeped in independent film, you know, whether yeah. it was through Sundance or through the independent films you produced or the ones that you talk about and educate about. But you're talking about like one of the first steps is learning the system. And I feel like a lot of our listeners are like, well, what's, why do you need to know the system if you're making I, independent film? I went to <laughs> film school. Yeah, yeah. I, right. I was going to double down. I think working in acquisitions is maybe the smartest thing I've heard for an independent producer to do. Right. So my, yeah. So my first true job, I say, always say Lionsgate was my grad school and I was the assistant to head of, at the time he headed up three departments. He headed up acquisitions, home entertainment and new media, new media, then Lionsgate owned cinema now, which was really kind of one of the first online streaming platforms that existed. And so I got to learn the home video business and acquisitions and learn festivals. But, you know, one of the kind of key things I got to do then was see distribution agreements, right? And my boss would have a weekly breakfast with his head of legal for acquisitions. And, you know, I, I wanted to learn more. And he said, well, you can come to breakfast. You can't talk like we have work to do, but you can come and listen. So I would come to breakfast every week with him and his head of legal and just listen to them, you know, do their deals. And then once a month, I would have breakfast or lunch with the head of legal and ask all my questions. And and really learn distribution deals. And, you know, the terrible thing to know is that they're no different now, except now (laughs) they have SVOD, you know, labeled in, but distribution agreements, you know, truthfully are the same as they were in the, in the early 2000s, but. But isn't there a difference now, like in terms of DVD and Blu-ray, like that those just aren't a substantial part of the distribution plan like they were back then? They're not part of the plan, but the deal is still the same. You know, if you're doing a deal with a major distributor, they're still the same. So, you know, like my deal and I'll see you in my dreams or it follows like with, with companies like Bleaker or at then Radius, like they look exactly the same as the deals that Lionsgate were doing in the early 2000s. You know, again, give or take a, few, a little bit of language. There's still 20, 25 year deals. They still have, you know, all, you know, all those same rights in them. Um, There's just little tiny slight differences that add in a few new you know, platforms that didn't exist in the early 2000s. Well, what about like MGs or like minimum guarantees that that people were, seem to be much more common for even the smallest of films and now seem to not to be kind of like a big prize if you can get one? Yeah, I mean, it's still in the deal. The number is just smaller. So, you know, they're they're again, the, the deal, the structure of the deal is are, are exactly the same. It's just the what you're getting offered is, is slightly different. Um, so for me, you know, starting, I did two years in acquisitions and then I did two years as a creative executive in production development. So then I really got to hone my skills in, in story development, um, which again is, is, and is, is still kind of what I feel my strength is as a producer and what I really love. Um, and from, from Lionsgate, I went and worked as a VP for Linda Opst when she had a deal at Paramount, um, also doing, doing development. So really you know, spent a good six years in the studio world first before even, you know, moving into the independent space. And that's quite fast too, right? Like to to go from an assistant to an, you know, into development in two years is like fast track. It was. Part of it was at the time when I was an assistant, the production development team had asked me to start sitting in and reading scripts with them. They were looking for, to do some projects for younger audiences, teen for, for women and, and they had no women, <laughs> they, had, they had no young people and they had no women um, in the department. 
And so I was just reading and, and they knew I loved to read and I had a great boss who didn't care if you get, get your work done for me, like, of course, do whatever you like, you know, go ahead and work with them too. And so I was like moonlighting as an assistant already in production development. And so there was an opportunity to, to move over um, when Lionsgate merged with Artisan and, and I took it and had a boss who kind of supported that move. So yeah, no, it was, it definitely was quick and internal moves don't happen like that often. But I, again, I had a, I had a really great boss who was a, was a great mentor and, and saw that as an opportunity for me. So then tell me how you came to produce for yourself, basically. Like, where, where did you go? So you were in-house at Paramount and what happened next? What I'd, I'd always wanted to produce, I, I went to the North Carolina School of the Arts and, and producing was my, my major. It was a small arts conservatory um, school and that was always the goal. Um, you know, it was I, when I was in college, I, I read Christine Bichon's book and, you know, that was what I wanted. And I interned for her in college and I worked on Boys Don't Cry. And like that was, oh, that was awesome. the kind of like, you know, Wait, which the, one? The, uh, shooting to kill or yeah, killer. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Shoot, yeah. Or killer life. Well, no, the killer first life, one, yeah. whatever the gotcha. first one was. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and I applied for an internship and I went, I'd never been to New York and my mom dropped me off and, and spent the summer there and I was a post intern and like, that was my first real credit and, you know, learned so much. And, um, so that was always the goal. I just, again, it's like, how do you get there? Especially at that time. Um, and you know, I didn't come from a family of money or, you know, with any connections. And so, um, so that was always the plan, even as I was doing these other jobs. And so, um, it was very, I actually had moved home to Michigan before once um, I was working for Linda and a writer actually I had hired on a project at Lionsgate ran a film, uh, still runs a film festival here in Michigan called the Waterfront Film Festival. And this, he was instrumental in helping the state get their incentive going here in Michigan. And he had raised a film fund and he said, Hey, will you come to Michigan and, and, help me kind of start a company and, and produce films for me. And so it was kind of like an in-house producer with this fund and his festival. And I had been to his festival and it was really like, you know, people kind of say like every 10, 10 or so years, you need to just like blow up your life and do something completely different. Mm -hmm. It wasn't quite 10 years, like six years. And so it was really just a huge jump. Um, and so I moved back home to Michigan then, I think that was 2007. Um, and I just did it and I came and I went and I produced my first film, which nothing really came of and you don't know it because it did, you know, didn't, didn't succeed. Um, but I produced my first film. It was like a $600,000 film and, and, um, some of my best friends are still are people I worked with on that film. And can I ask where you found the financing for that first film? Um, so it was this fund that this particular person raised from, from money in Michigan Gotcha. Yeah, that, yeah. that was invested in this incentive and, um, and they made one movie after that. Um, they funded Dustin Lance Black's uh, directorial film, which I'm going to forget um, the name of it. Um, and so, yeah, and so that was really my first my first film. And then I stayed there and I line produced another film for somebody else. And then it just wasn't quite the right fit and came back to L.A. Um, and at and that point, then I that's when I kind of, I realized actually that even though I had been in the studio world and I learned that world that the independent space was kind of a completely different space and group of people and process. Um, and at that time I started then working at Sundance um, and made that switch more into the indie space and, and wanted to work there because again, I realized, Oh, wait a minute. I know all these studio people, but I don't know all the indie people. And it was really another whole world. Um, and so 
that was a more like that was kind of like another big shift in my career. I'm kind of curious about like the difference between the the indie space and the studio space. Like obviously, right in studios, you're spending way more money. It's taking way longer. You're trying to attach talent, like bigger talent and all that stuff. But when it comes to distribution, is it as stark as a difference? Or are you when you're making your indie films, are you trying to figure out like if this genre and this talent and this this cast and this director is going to make back the money in the same way that you were doing when you were working at Lionsgate? I do because I think that was ingrained in me from working in the studio space. I don't think everybody does. I don't think enough people do. Um, one of the big things that I took away in the difference was when I started producing after studio life, I was developing scripts that didn't have directors and I couldn't get them going. And I didn't understand why until I got more in the indie space and realized, oh, because most of the really talented directors are developing their own stuff. They're writing their own stuff. And in the studio world, you're doing it differently. I mean, sometimes it comes, you know, sometimes it's a writer director, but most of the times it's a script and you're bringing a director on. Um, and so that was one of the first kind of key things that I real like why I wasn't moving forward that I realized I was doing wrong. You know, in the studio world, you have distribution, so you don't even really think about it. I mean, you are thinking about audience and who is this for and how are you going to market it? You know, marketing conversations happen at the point of green lighting a film. You know, when you are deciding, should we make this film? You are thinking about how are we going to market this? What what does this look like to an audience? Who comes to see this? Can, you know, you are running numbers on is this going to perform and what does that look like both for theatrical and home video and, you know, a, a, across the board international. And that's how decisions are made. And so I do that as an indie producer. I absolutely think about the financials before I choose to make a film. I would say I'm a rare case to do that. I think that's really interesting what you say about in the indie film space that the directors, it's harder to attach a director. I'm sure like all of our listeners that are directors are like, uh, you could have attached me. <laughs> uh, like there's probably, right, like tens of thousands of directors starving especially for their first movie or even for their second movie. Um, but when you were developing that stuff, were you trying to find like kind of a, a known director in the indie space? I don't remember, honestly. <laughs> I don't remember. It could have also just been I didn't have enough, you know, credits behind my name. People didn't know who I was. I don't know. You know, I don't know. It might have been that. I mean, even though, even though now, though, like I uh, like I've, I've kind of the last two, three years really been focusing on pulling in more of that development work I did as, as an executive and bringing that into my producing work. And, and I do find it's really hard to package projects in a development way because, I mean, a lot of the great filmmakers are developing their own material. And, and also I'm finding now that there is a sense of urgency that people want things to go very quickly. You know, people don't want the book that's going to take another two years to get ready. They want something that can shoot within 12 months. When you say people, you mean on the filmmakers or the financiers? Across the board. I mean, financiers as well, you know, but but filmmakers, filmmakers who've had success, I'm finding really kind of want want things that are going to go quickly. Well, so the million dollar question is what makes a great filmmaker like for you to want to work with them or like what are some qualities that like get you excited about a filmmaker? I talk a lot about audience in, in kind of everything I, I do. And I want the filmmaker who is telling stories for audience, not for industry. And I find that a lot of us are more concerned about what industry thinks versus what audiences are going to think. I'm worried more about, you know, industry praise 
mm-hmm. versus audience praise. And there's a big difference. And I think that's the biggest difference of now living in Detroit is it's really changed my perspective on story and what kind of movies to tell. If you um, watch Tyler Perry's BET speech the other night, um, he got like the Icon Award at the BET Awards. And, and he mentioned that, you know, he's like, you know, he mentioned like Oscar's so white. And he's like, you can, you can all go do Oscar's so white. Like I'm going to, I'm going to just go build my own here in Atlanta, right? Yeah, he's got an empire. He's not sweating it, right? Right? But but I was actually at Lionsgate when the first Tyler Perry movie was made. (laughs) And I remember, I'm going way off your, your, your question here, but I remember the head of production going around the office asking, does anyone know who Tyler Perry is? Because at the time, he had sold a lot of DVDs of his stage play. Like, he was a known quantity before his first movie was made. And he had made good money already and and the and the dvds were just like a camera set up at the back of his theater and he sold like he self-released like he self-released his theater plays and he sold them in the back of the theater and he came in with the script for the film the first film and um nobody knew who he was because of course Lionsgate was all white and so walking around nobody knew who he was and but nobody knew who he was and he self-financed half the film and Lionsgate financed the other half. Well, that meant he owned half of everything, right? And so Lionsgate didn't take the risk on him and finance the full film. And they should have because he came in with a proven success already. And so it's just, you know, like to me, that's, that is everything, right? That is, that is a filmmaker who knows that they have an audience and is founded and is focused on it and is service, servicing his audience and in return, you know, made it, like you said, made his own empire. And I, I just think there's just too much, too many filmmakers caught up in festival approval and, and, and critics and reviews where nobody goes to see a movie here because it played Sundance, you know, like it's not a thing that exists in the, in the world. And, you know, and so I want filmmakers who are open to just ignoring industry validation i'm like let's really talk about who you're making your movie for and the filmmakers who are going to be you know truly collaborative you know i think that people who are just making movies for themselves also aren't as collaborative as people who are really kind of open it up to think about who they're making it for and so and i've been in different situations where it's it's completely collaborative experiences and other times you're it's clearly one person's not and i don't even like to say their vision because nobody makes a movie by themselves. You know, everyone's like, you know, singular vision. It's like, okay, well, let's take away all those creative people on set. And is the vision going to be executed? <laughs> like, I don't believe in the singular vision. Um, I don't, I don't, I'm just not that person. I, I don't think that that is how movies are made. Well, and I think the more time you spend making movies, the more apparent that is. Yeah. Right? Like, I think when you start out as a young director, you know, that's the thing that they teach you first, right? Like you learn auteur theory and like just the idea of like, I mean, especially like for people our age where you see an independent filmmaker and you're like, oh yeah, like that's Steven Soderbergh did that whole thing himself. And like, you know, it only cost $10,000 or whatever. You know what I mean? All of that sort of mythology, right? That's like so helpful for selling movies to a certain audience but has no, it's all marketing. It's, you know, there's no reality to it. Right. Or like, even just like, I read all the time and I give notes and I read, like, it's just a part of what I I do as as a filmmaker in the community. And there's a filmmaker who, you know, had wanted to work with and talk with a lot. And I had read a script of hers and, and I just like, to me, there was like no point in it. Like no one, like, 
I just didn't get it. Like, I don't see the need for this. This feels dated. Like, you know, just, and I, and I said, but you know, if your main character was a woman, this would be much more interesting to me. And we kind of, and I, I like, I, I know that's a huge shift, but this is just, and I kind of broke down why I felt that way. And then I hadn't, I haven't talked to her in a while. And then somebody told me she was making her movie and I said, Oh, and they told me, and they told me which one it is. I'm like, question for you. I'm like, is the lead character a man or a woman? And like a woman, I'm like, there you go. So she like, she took the note, like, and it was a, you know, a half hour conversation. It's like, so, and my name will be nowhere on that movie. And it doesn't need to be like, I was just giving her notes in my opinion, but, but to then call that a singular vision, sure, <laughs> right? you know what right. I mean? It's like that came, that, that came from me. And like, she ingested and turned it around and spit it out. And it is hers now, but like, you just can't like to lead with that all the time in our industry. Like we do. You know, and that was just me giving feedback to a friend, right? right. So to then right. have actual real collaborators on your set and real people helping you make your movie. So I just, I'm just not that producer. And there are people that are, like there are people that fully believe in that, but that's not really my my approach. And so those are kind of the two things that when I look for filmmakers and just filmmakers that can be vulnerable, I think that there's a lot of ego in our work and it can get in the way. It's got, I've let it get in my own way. And I think that I'm, I've really worked hard to get to a place of just being vulnerable about how hard it is and, the, you know, the, the weaknesses and, and what we need to do to kind of get through making these films. And so filmmakers who can also do the same and and not kind of put up a front or an ego and, and can kind of be in it with you because it's, it's really hard. I love everything about what I do, but we're just making movies. And again, like being out of LA, I'm really in a space where there's real life struggles around me all the time. And that's why it's like, Nobody cares what I'm doing, you know, <laughs> like it's just good to be in an environment where you're kind of reminded that I'm just in entertainment, you know, right. life could be a lot worse. And so I don't, I don't like to work at that heightened level of urgency that this is just so important. I do believe art is important and movies are important and entertainment is important, but to a certain level. I want to circle back on, uh, on something that you kind of mentioned a little bit earlier, just about the idea of filmmakers creating their films for an audience and ask does that mean commercial to you or are those kind of two separate ideas they're two separate ideas it doesn't matter how big that audience is it doesn't mean commercial it just means define who that is there are filmmakers who want to make films specifically for the lgbtq community which mm -hmm. is kind of a, a very specific sub audience right those can be told in big commercial ways too but there are some that, that want to tell it very specifically so that's one you know one type of of, of storytelling there's there's horror but then there's also like very underground <laughs> subversive yeah. horror right and that's a different sector and so like i think that there's broad genres and then there's multiple layers of genre within genres it's not about it being commercial or no one uses four quadrant anymore but that was you know a phrase when i was in the studio space of hitting everybody um you just have to know what it is because that's Knowing who your audience is is how you end up building your project. And so when I read a script, it's first is, do I, do I connect to it? Is this a great script? Do I connect to it personally? And the second question is audience, because then that's how I determine the budget. Like if this is the audience for it, like what is that size of the audience? But then second, how does that audience consume movies, right? Mm -hmm. So maybe, this, sure. maybe yeah. this audience is the older I'll see in my dreams audience that does go to the theater, or maybe it's the young audience that doesn't go to the movie theater. So that's then going to determine the platform that I'm releasing on, which also determines how much your movie gets bought for, which then determines how much I have to raise, which then determines my budget, right? So it's like right. all works backwards. And so 
that's why I asked that because, you know, filmmakers an art house isn't an audience. People say that all the time. Art house is a place you watch your films. And that <laughs> like that drives me insane. It's like, okay, art, no art house, like uh, young, there's young people that go to art house. There's old people that go to like art house is a place. And so really defining your audience it, it could be 10 people but that is also going to tell you how you're going to make your movie and are there thresholds for you personally as a filmmaker where you're like well you know what this is too narrow it's a very specific audience but it's too small for us to strategically manage to make our money back or make a movie in the first place there is for me now i mean i'm at a place you know having made a handful of films like i'm trying to push out of the million and under budget just because right now it isn't sustainable and i've had two films that were very successful and two films that didn't perform as well as i expected them to and it's just as hard to make those movies whether people see them or they don't having had success at the level of it follows and i'll see you in my dreams like it's really hard to then not have your films screened at that level and it doesn't have to be theatrically, but just to have your films known in that way, it really is it really is quite rewarding. And so Yeah, once you get a taste of that, it's hard to go. It back. is. It really is. Because again, the work is the same. The work is not different if nobody sees your film. And so for me, I'm really trying to I'm really trying I mean, to be honest, I'm really trying to find work that I think is undeniable because I think that's what's needed in order for people to turn up um, for your film. That is a word, if we don't use four quadrant anymore, we say yeah. undeniable now, nonstop. Right. What does that mean to you? Um, it was like in the, there was that New York Times article the other day that kind of broke down, you know, all these filmmakers and executives, like what they think about the future of, of movies. I don't know if you saw, and like, I don't know if it was like Tom Rothman, one of the top studio execs said mm -hmm. about young people said, you know, kid, younger people don't go to the movies, they go see a movie. Right. And like that, sure. that kind of helps define it to me. It's like, I want, you know, I'll see you in my dreams and, and it follows to me were undeniable. When I looked at those, I didn't, you know, you never, you never expect success in the way that I think they happen, but there were qualities to those films that I felt I'd never seen before. And like, I actually never wanted to do horror. I started at Lionsgate having no interest in horror, but my boss was a horror aficionado. And, and when I started there, he just bought Cabin Fever I was there to see how the Saw franchise came to be in Open Water and The Descent, House of a Thousand Corpses, and like, you name it, like in that whole wave of horror kind of reinventing itself, I was at the front line for it. And, and I read everything. And I even worked on all the creature features and the Ginger Snap series and Leprechauns, like all the, the B DVD titles too, because that was also his world. And so I'd seen everything. And then when I read it follows, I'm like, I haven't seen this. <laughs> and that was rare. Like I, you know, and. And that was just from the script. Yeah. And, and you listen, the script, like we worked, I worked on it with David and we did drafts and, you know, and, and I, I helped develop that as well. But there was something about what he presented me in the script and his vision for it that I had not seen. And that, and same with I'll see you in my dreams. Like I just hadn't seen something done for that older audience in the way that Brett was doing it. That's what's undeniable to me is, have I seen it before? And it's really rare to come by, which is why I don't have a huge body of work. There are producers that are churning out movies several times a year because that truly that's what you need to do to, to make a living. But I'm, I'm not going to produce something just to produce it. I, I, I have to feel it really is something I've not seen before because I do want the films to push through 
And if they don't, they don't. Like even my other, like the my my other narrative film, and then I go is about two young boys involved in a school shooting, and I absolutely believe the same thing. Like there is not another film like that that exists. It just didn't hit in the way that I think it should have. I think it's just too hard of a film right now for the country. Well, let me ask you, you know, about these features. How did the scripts come to find you? How did you first come across these movies? Um, they're always kind of in roundabout ways. I actually don't get a ton of submissions. Agents don't send me anything ever, to be honest. <laughs> I don't know why, but I don't I don't get like normal submissions. Um, I'll see you in my dreams. Brett Haley and I went to the same college um, together, though not at the same time. And we were connected on his first film. Um, the actress in his movie reached out to me and wanted me to help him on his first film, um, The New Year, when it was in the festival circuit. And so I actually just started working with Brett and helped him sell his first film and helped him on the film festival circuit and we started collaborating then on and then i go actually first um but couldn't get the movie made again it's about a school shooting we started working on it you know in 2011 i think when nobody was talking about school shootings in the way they are now and it was just too hard to get going and i said you need to write something easier <laughs> like I, you need to write something smaller and easier like more more accessible you know, we just need to do something different and we won't, you know, we're not going to abandon that project, but I just can't, I can't get it made. I just can't right now. And then again, that's like that being vulnerable part, like just admitting it, like I just, it's not going to happen. And he didn't have anything and I didn't have anything. And, um, and he wrote, I'll see you in my dreams. <laughs> and, and that was how that script came about. So I was there, you know, he pitched three ideas to me and actually dreams was the one that I was like, ah, I don't know. It sounds really cheesy. Um, and he just said, I don't know, I, there's just something about it. And he writes super fast and he churned out a draft and gave me the first draft and it was fantastic. And we developed it and, and made the film. Um, so that was one where I was there from the, the idea, seat of the idea um, with him. And then It Follows was like a very roundabout way as well, where actually I met David at a party. Aaron Katz had a premiere party for one of his films and Aaron and I went to college together and David and I were just chatting and I needed an editor and he introduced me to his editor who ended up editing one of my films. And then like a year later, the editor said, hey, David's got a new film and it's in Detroit and I know you're from Detroit and I know you know horror and it's horror and you guys should meet and you should read it. <laughs> and I said, okay. And that's, I got it through the editor of, that David worked with who then edited It Follows as well and edited Silver Lake, their college friends together. So there's just kind of like this random, you know, like I was saying at the start of our conversation, like who you know really does matter, even if it's just like the people you went to college with or you're at a party or you're out, like we were just at a bar in LA, right? I'm curious about, I mean, I already mentioned before we started recording that I'm a huge fan of It Follows, mm -hmm. but I'm curious, like, I guess if we can do like a real quick case study of how you decide like the a budget on that film and um, because it, it has like no names in it right no I, at least no one that, that i knew before i saw the movie um and then it ends up doing so well so i guess i'm curious like like how important is the cast in order for you to make it uh, and raise the money for it and then also like in terms of showing it to the world like how important is a festival premiere to bring like a movie with no cast like out into the world well cast for horror films don't really matter um again that was something i had learned at lionsgate and Preferably, you don't even want name cast because I think personally it ruins the experience. Um, and if you look back at the horror films you really loved, I can probably guess that they didn't have cast in it you knew. Um, it just helps you suspend disbelief better. 
or you learned of them later, right? Exactly. You know, that's what launches them, right? Yes, they became something after the horror right. film. Or even yeah. like Micah Monroe, right? She's like has a great career now. And she had done, you know, certainly had worked before, but not in a way that people really knew who she was. Um, so that was a film that, you know, we the goal was to have raised like $1.5 million but weren't able to raise that. We made the film for 900,000. A bit more after that, once we actually finished the film and delivered it and premiered it. And that was, the way we did that film was, you know, really, I mean, most indies under a million are pure equity, plus a tax incentive, grant money if you're lucky. We didn't have grant money on it. So it was equity plus a tax incentive. The tax incentive was about 180,000, which was a Michigan incentive that doesn't exist anymore. And the rest was equity. And so what we did, though, is we brought on board an international sales agent, Visit Films, who had sold David's first film, Myth of the American Sleepover. And, you know, for indies, you can't really pre-sell international for, for many reasons. But sales agents can do estimates for you. And Visit Films is a reputable sales agent. They sold his first film. It was genre. Um, and David's first film did well internationally. Um, and so Visit Films did estimates for us. Um, and estimates are going to give you, you know, a low, middle, and high. And so on the low end, I think the low end came in around 800000 And so we took the estimates and we went to, to investors, to equity investors, and said, listen, on the low end, Visit feels they can write, you know, they can sell the film internationally for this amount. That doesn't include a U.S. sale. And so it was just some, you know, backup to say that if we make the film for this amount, you know, worst case scenario, they feel that the international value is this much. There's no guarantee whatsoever. The film could turn out a complete disaster and, and Visit Film sells $10,000 worth, and that can happen. Um, but again, you're looking at a track record of, you know, David's film, the script, the lookbook. David also did the most spectacular lookbook I've ever seen. I use it when I teach all the time. You know, and so you're, you're presenting a package to a financier. And, you know, so with what we had, that's what we took out in the world and raised the money that way. And we the film premiered in Cannes. Fest, I mean, festivals are everything to a, to a fault now in the independent space. I think that it actually is one of the biggest issues in independent film right now is that the dis distribution market has put such a such a reliance on festivals and Sundance in particular where... There actually is very little discovery, you know, happening that the numbers are so great. You know, there's if you look like Sundance has a, a website, a, a page on their website called the history of Sundance. And I use it when I teach too. it lays out every year, the number of submissions, the number of films screened and the submissions, you know, have doubled in the last 20 years. But the number of films screened hasn't. It's the same. And so, you know, you're looking at just like a 1.5 percent chance of getting into Sundance and you're also competing like. A24 had two films in competition this year, like in competition that they financed. And so Netflix has their films, you know, DirecTV had a movie that premiered on DirecTV the day after it screened. The Rock had a movie at Sundance this year that was bought in 2017. You know, like it's, it, it is because it's like, it is kind of just really, it's really challenging right now for independent film in the festival circuit, which wouldn't matter except that distributors they do devalue your film so tremendously if you don't premiere at Sundance Toronto and can, you know, the problem that filmmakers don't realize, I kind of roll my eyes when filmmakers say they're going to, you know, premiere internationally is because you're competing with the world at that point. Like 
international festivals only take a few American films. We were the only American film in our category, you know, so that that's highly unlikely too, that you're going to get a huge international premiere. You're going to get an international premiere if you premiere Sundance, right? And so, and, and, and right now we're in a period where no one's really talking about it, but the films aren't selling this year. And so yes, Amazon bought 46 million worth, but take a look at what else has sold. And it's, it's very, very minimal. And the offers are really, really low. And there's you know, just a handful of sales out of South by there's been no announcements out of Tribeca right now. And so it's it, the festival circuit is quite bleak. And when I worked in acquisitions, you know, one of the big differences between then and now is that, yes, there was a reliance on festivals, but films were bought year round, you could screen a film for a, a distributor without a festival and, and still be considered. We'd screen films year round, there was a screening room, and there was always screenings all, all week. Um, you still had to have some, you know, some cast or some direct, you know, there had to be sure, something sure. to you it. Had to, you had to get somebody to come to your screening, but yeah, but you it's would not, yeah, you would just screen for the acquisitions execs at Lionsgate, and that would be it. Like you could do that, and now we tried that with I'll See You in My Dreams actually, because I had no, I truly had no thought that it was getting into Sundance. It, to me, it was not a Sundance movie whatsoever. And when I took the movie on, when we went to go make it, I actually thought, well, that's, this is great because it doesn't need a festival. Like there's clearly an audience for this movie and it's, it's just lovely and sweet and it feels good and, and we can sell it no matter what. And we showed it to a handful of distributors and their response was, well, let's see if it gets into Sundance. And I was like, but no, it's not like, it's not a Sundance movie. Like who cares if it gets into Sundance? This audience doesn't care. Like, and I, I was just like dumbfounded, but they all, they just can't make their own decisions. They have to have a festival. And so for me, kind of with where I am in my career, my goal is to make movies that aren't reliant on a Sundance premiere. <laughs> so that's not to say that none of them won't be in that space, but I would really love to get out of it because it's really volatile right now. Do you think there are other festivals like a Fantastic Fest or like more genre-based festivals that can work as well not for sales i mean you could get you could get a sale but you're looking at under 100 grand offers so again like it determines how much you're going to make your movie for if, if your plan is to make a horror film and premiere at, Fant at fantasia fest which is a fantastic festival you got you're making the no budget movie you know i, I always ask do you want a career or do you just want to make your movie there's a huge there's just a huge huge difference and that is the question anybody you know that is the first question everybody should ask themselves when they go to make their film. Like, it is about what are your expectations um, because that should inform every decision you make, especially raising money. You should not take someone's money if you don't have a plan for getting it back because it, it, it hurts the whole of the industry. Like right, because, because there haven't been sales this year, it's also really hard right now to raise money for everybody because a lot of money's tied up in these festivals and a lot of finance, reliable financiers are really hesitant. Um, and, and the, the film, the financiers who might be newer to the game are, are not going to jump in because it's really unstable right now. So, you know, films losing money hurts everybody, um, and the whole, the whole system. And the, the worst case we could get to is having a really narrow pool of financiers for indies and everyone just trying to make the bigger indie, you know, or everyone, you know, everyone really is just pitching to Netflix, which is a real thing right now. This is a thing that we hear on the on the show sometimes, sometimes even more like, once we're done recording off the mic, people will kind of have this sort of understanding of where we are business wise. You, though, I think are kind of 
on the bleeding edge of, as a as a producer and as a long time indie producer on the bleeding edge of like the currents of what's happening you know you're like you're the first you're the bellwether right mm-hmm. so do you have a sense of the future or like what you'd like to see what what you're hoping for that sort of situation is it is it simply just like don't worry about festivals build for audiences and and go from there i would like less i, I would like people to slow down in making their films and be smarter so i think in almost every conversation i have um every interview every panel I talk about self-distribution. Like if you're if you're going to make right now, if you're going to make a coming of age movie with no no name cat. And again, I did this and this is my film and then I go. And we had Melanie Linsky and Tony Hale and Justin Long. Like we still had Melanie Diaz. Like I still had real cast, but the leads were kids, right? If you're going to make a coming of age movie, you have to self-release your film. And that should be the plan from the moment you start raising money for the film. Like it should be in your budget. You should not just have a production budget. You should have a production budget and a development budget. If you don't need it and you end up being that outlier, that like eighth grade, although that's different cause that's a comedy, but let's just say, use that as an example. If you end up being the outlier and you don't need it, great. Give that money back to your financiers. You got a distribution deal, you're set. But again, like when you really look at what then happens, if you don't, if you wait it out for the festival, and you wait through Sundance, TIFF, South by Tribeca, and then you don't get any of those. It's like now now you're in March. Now you have to raise money. Like it's putting you out a year and a half to get your movie released. Like there's such a long tail that people don't think about. And so for me, it's about anyone. Again, it's not my place to say who's making movies or what kind of movies. But if you follow what's happening in the business and you're seeing what kind of movies aren't selling or are selling, but for ten, twenty thousand dollars $20,000, which is a typical sale right now for, you know, coming of age dramas, just art, you know, typical dra- indie dramas, then that should be part of your plan from the get go so that you're responsible to the money you raise. You're responsible to the people who worked on your film and you're responsible to your film. And as a producer, like you are most responsible to your film. And so, that is what I would like to see become the trend. Um, and maybe we just got to weather it out and it starts to shift. But I think that when even the top players in our business have no idea what's really happening and what's going on, and that's that New York Times article is everybody's all over the map and who really doesn't know what the future brings, then it's about, it's about security for your film and making sure that you don't just spend these years building a film that then no one sees. And so I would like to see that um, in place and and part of that again is filmmakers slowing down and not just making the movie because you can because someone's going to give you 50 grand i'm just going to go make the movie and then we'll figure it out i think that's the worst thing um, that you can do and i want to see filmmakers being more thoughtful about the process about distribution about the audience about getting their financiers their money back you know and and again that's like again you know all this traveling and teaching and labs like so much of it is just let's just get it in the can that philosophy that honestly is is taught in film schools sometimes and nobody teaching distribution or the realities of what distribution is right now and that to me is most important and you know the dear producer website you'll notice is i i don't hardly ever talk about production at all (laughs) and even when i teach i tell people that ask me to do a panel or teach i'm like just so you know like i usually skip over production because that's so easier to learn People don't really talk about building the movie and then selling and releasing the movie. And, and those are the areas I focus on because it's the, it's the least talked about and the hardest part of the process. Production is going to be, you know, six to 10 weeks sure. of, of multiple years. 
And do you think if you're like a director, producer, or writer that is trying to kind of break into the studio system through indie film, uh, that it's still just as important to figure out how to sell your movie and make your money back and distribute it? It's more important because the, the people that are picking up those filmmakers are the ones that have that breakout success. And even if it's not the financial breakout success, you are still that hot commodity at a festival. Um, you know, there are films that, you know, not, didn't necessarily, weren't necessarily like the box office success, but they were, they were that person at the festival and, and studios more than anybody else cares about audience and, and profit. So they absolutely want to know who you're making this movie for. Um, cause again, they, they are talking about that before they decide to make a movie and they, again, bring in their marketing departments to talk about that at the end of the day like it doesn't have to be how you make decisions but to not take into consideration i think is is a bit irresponsible i want to i want to get into dear producer but before that i just want to dig into one detail that i'm sure matt could guess right now that i'm gonna ask you about um david robert mitchell's lookbook that you said uh, yeah um what <laughs> you, you literally or and you went ooh <laughs> Yeah, because I mean, you know, we're filmmakers. We we write and we direct and we pitch and we <clears throat> write a lot of treatments, and we're always trying to find out or try to figure out how we can make something that doesn't look like a million other things. Like one of the things I've learned from working in this business for a while is that what worked for you five years ago probably is not going to work for you today. You know, because everyone caught on to making a ripomatic, you know, now I've yeah. seen like a hundred ripomatics. Who cares? Um so what what's like can you tell us like what was so fantastic about David's lookbook that got you excited? It was and it was specific to the film, but he kind of told another story within the story. So it wasn't just a synopsis. Like he pulled um photos from the photography Gregory Crudson, um, which if you look at them and then look, then look at it follow. I mean, if you just pull up his photos, you'll see like, oh yeah, that looks like it follows. Like there's so many, there's so many other photographers and filmmakers reference, like a visual reference that it follows. And, and that's not, you know, that we talk about that. David talks about that. Like there's lots of influences in that film. Um, but the lookbook was written kind of like a journal entry from a girl. I just pulled it up as kind of a reference, but it was like, I really liked him. Even after this, I still have feelings for him. I'm so stupid. He told me that he passed it on to me. And so like, it's this like kind of inner, inner monologue of this girl, but then there's photos of the suburbs. And then it says it started with sex. Did I catch it? And then there's photos of the city. The city is rotting. It's, its presence is always behind. Something's walking closer. Is someone watching me? You know, there's, so it's just kind of like laying out it might be crawling through your window or approaching you through a crowd. So, so it's like the story. It's like you're you're following a story mm, as right. you're looking at these photos. He's telling you about the character and the premise in the world without yes, you feeling it enters while without you sleep. a headline yeah. that says characters, premise, and world. Yeah. Exactly. But yeah, then yeah. you know, then that takes you to like page twenty, and then there's his director statement, his bio. Actually, there's no synopsis. <laughs> there's no synopsis at all. <laughs> That's right? so good. <laughs> and he talks about it in the statement of what it is. Um, 
but you just clearly and then you but then you read the script it just it makes you want to read the script it creeps you out it makes you wonder you have no idea really what's going on and i don't know it, again it was just like one when i you say undeniable it was one of those things where i'm like i've never seen a look like this and i still have it and you know i started working on that in 2012 i think and the images are they they're not like the same person from picture to picture like he's no they're not it's they're all i mean they're all just different imagery. women the photographer is the same i think i think all the photographs are, the, are this one photographer some might not be i think some of them are probably different but they all it all has a similar look to it um i think some mistakes filmmakers have is just you'll look at a lookbook and there's not a consistency you know there's there's different there's lookbooks and there's pitch decks and they're different so like i'll do a pitch deck from a producer and that's more for like a financier and it has a little bit more information on the business aspects or comparable films or, you know, a bit more information. Um, yeah. There's no comps. In this, in this. No, this is like my yeah. bio's not in this. It's just David and the, and the style for the film. And I think this was really important because the script, you know, as is the movie is, is vague. You don't, you know, the, and the first draft certainly was that I, it wasn't his first draft, but the first draft I read, you know, definitely still needed some explaining to do. And so I think that it, this in particular really helped you understand what the tone and the feel was going to be. And so genre in particular really needs that. And that, that, you know, lookbook helps you with the tone of a film um, more so than like a pitch deck or business plan. And so I just hadn't, I hadn't seen anything that was as effective in that space as, as this. And this, again, still haven't gotten anything from a director that I feel like has done it this well. A friend of his was a graphic designer. So I will say like he took the time, had a graphic designer, put in the work, paid his designer friend. Like, you know, he was really serious about it. And that is something that too, that I've had, I've had directors put them together and like I literally redo them for them because it's just sloppy and 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 not like you have you have to put the time together to do it and and david did that wow well awesome well so okay so now you're unleashing all your wisdom and the (laughs) the wisdom of the collective uh great independent producers uh, of our time on your website dear producer yes can you tell us about that yeah so i started that um I managed the Sundance Producing Lab for several years um, before I made It Follows and I'll See You in My Dreams and just was very fortunate to kind of make an amazing group of producer friends and over the years found that we were, I was having the same conversations with all of them, but there wasn't necessarily a community of producers kind of talking to each other or, or, you know, everyone's always focused on their projects and their filmmakers and and never really stopping to look at their the business on their own and for themselves and, and what producers need. And so I'd seen kind of other groups try to get together and do things, but it just, it, nothing ever happened because again, producers are never focused on themselves. And so I just thought, well, what can I do on my own to help the producing community and, and came up with this website um, and, and, ac- and ac- by accessing all these great producers that I know. And so the site is, a place for producers to, you know, share their experiences and tell their stories. And they are, you know, the majority of his interviews that I do with, with producers and the idea is to just really dig in 
you know, in the way we're doing here, but, but every, every week with producers and talk about the issues that filmmakers are having and how they're putting movies together and the struggles and, and, you know, how we can kind of hopefully kind of change the industry. And I do think that the thing that producers can do is start to shift some of these areas, which we're all struggling because we're the ones negotiating the deals. And there is a lot of control in that, in that area that can actually shift the business. And so for me, I'm trying to get producers to talk more openly about their experience, you know, good and bad. And then, you know, off kind of offline, I am getting groups of producers together at festivals and we're having smaller kind of conversations about this and, and looking for ways to move the needle forward in different areas. We also just launched a video series I did with um, another producer, Chris Olson, who um, usually produces for the Zellner brothers. He produced Damsel and Kimiko, the treasure hunter and awesome movies like that. And so Chris and I did a series of on-camera interviews with producers that were at South by that we just started releasing out to the world as well. And so you can sign up for the newsletter or follow it on any social media platform at Dear Producer. And, and I think, it, you know, for me, it's the idea that there's just nothing out there about producing. But yet, again, so much is influenced by the work of producers. And so for me, it was really just filling a void that wasn't out there and that I felt was really instrumental to the business as a whole. Um, and the idea is that everything written for the site is from the producer's perspective. But I really would like, I, I do think everything being published is beneficial to any indie filmmaker trying to get their movie made. It is all about how do we get these movies made? How do we get them out in the world? Um, and they're all are producers that I know that I have talked to. I know their personal experiences. So the interviews are really quite in depth and, and these producers have been very generous with their information that they give. And so they're not, you know, I look at them more as, as, as educational and, and somewhat like homework. <laughs> they're not short clip bait articles. They're, they're quite in depth. Um, but I think that that's, that's really where the benefit is um, in terms of this kind of information. What I love about it also is it's sort of kind of solving the problem that you have of like feeling frustrated by filmmakers who you know, you said we're, are surprised by the nature of the business, mm -hmm. right? So yeah. it's like now, like no one has any excuse. Like you're you're serving it up to everyone, yes. right? Like this is exactly how uh, to make a movie, and also like the the nature and, and state of the business, basically. Yeah, and I I when I teach I or do panels, like I do these pop quizzes where I I'll ask you know, okay, well, who, you know, who in the room whose goal is it to make their movie and have it premiere at Sundance, right? And everyone puts their hand up and I'll put my hand up because that was a goal of mine as well. But then I'll say, okay, well, who can name the film that won the grand jury prize this year? And everyone puts their hand up and no one can even name the film. Right. And so like, mm -hmm. so part of it is just like, it's, it, it is that, that aspect of, you're not ready. You know, a lot of it's like, okay, if you still want to do this, then go do it. <laughs> because... It's a little art school confidential. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And, and I try to not be completely negative, but also just show the realities and, and also really point out, you know, the, the people that aren't ready yet. And, and it's not to say you can't make your movie, but just go get ready first and, and go learn as much as you can first and then go make your movie. And that is the goal with the site. Um, and the majority of it are people, the people that I'm interviewing, a lot of them are the ones that weren't ready and went and made the film. And then they talk about all the things that happened because they weren't ready. <laughs> and I wish I would have known and I wish this and I wish that. And they speak very honestly about it. And so, at, you know, at, 
hopefully people that at least the people that are reading it religiously are now more informed, you know, than they would have been before. But that my goal, you know, is just to even in this distribution space, like if I can just get a few more filmmakers realizing that they might have to release their own film, like I think that that's just a benefit, you know, to to the community. And so me personally, you know, I love making my films, but I just think about what impact am I leaving the business other than my films? Because I, I also feel like, you know, it follows will live on, I think for a very long time. But I think in general, we're not an industry that are, is really making classics like they used to, because I think a volume is because the volume is so great as well. And so for me, I just, I love mentoring and teaching and I just want to do something a bit more than just my film. So it kind of plays into that. And instead of just mentoring two or three filmmakers a year, I can mentor on a much wider scale. The website is nice and straightforward. It's just dearproducer.com. So listeners, you have no excuse. <laughs> yes, check it out. Sign up and learn. <laughs> yes. I'm, I'm going to right now. Well, and then also, I also do like, I know a lot of people do their roundups of like what I'm reading or links to read. And I do that as well. I do a, a monthly roundup of articles and they tend to never be the same ones as anyone else because they're not, they're like the, the real meaty articles with actual information in them. Like that's part of it as well. It's just, I'm just doing my homework. And so if you do it too, like you can, you can get ahead and, and push forward. So I do that once a month too. Well, Rebecca, this is great. Uh, I think let's hop into unpaid endorsements. Cool, Oren, take it away. I think I'm sure I've talked about this before over the f- the past four years, but uh, my writing partner and I today we were we're working on developing this show, and someone had asked us to send them a Bible, which we we have like kind of a pitch document, but we don't quite have a Bible ready and we're trying to find good samples of Bibles. So I just Googled TV Bible sample. <laughs> and the like one of the first things that came up is this website called shorescripts.com, S-H-O-R-E scripts.com. And they have like a, a page with TV series Bibles and it, they're really great. But they have one for New Girl and it's not really a Bible as much as like the pitch document uh, that the creator looks like something she just like literally memorized and said in the room or read in the room. And it's just so great. It's like only text. There's no images or anything. And it's just like, uh, we were just talking about this, uh, on a previous podcast episode about how to present your idea in a way that's not boring. And I think Rebecca gave us a great example of how David Robert Mitchell did it with his lookbook. But, uh, if you read this pitch for new girl, it's, it's just awesome. I mean, it's just like this woman talking about her life and how her experience of being friends with all these men is the engine for this show. And it's just it's just kind of like real fun and funny to read. So check it out, shorescripts.com. That's cool. I get asked that question a lot as well. And that's interesting to, I just pulled it up to have access to it too. Yeah, it's nice to be able to be like, yeah, just check out this website. Yes. And they're all they're all completely different from each other. That's the I mean I think the the most interesting part, which is also like what Matt and I were talking about the other day. In TV in particular, because a lot of you know everyone wants to be in TV now, and and it's so much harder to get into TV than it is to get your indie made. <laughs> and so, but most people don't have examples. And I, I yeah, this is helpful. Awesome, Rebecca. Do you have anything? Yeah. So I'm a big book reader, as I said, and and always surprised that 
people in our industry don't read books. <laughs> so um, I also am a big YA young adult um, fan. And I read a book recently called How to Make Friends with the Dark by Kathleen Glasgow that was just a, she also has another book called Girl in Pieces that was a, a big book, I think two years ago. And just a book that really moved me and, and was about a young woman who suddenly loses her mom. Her mom dies suddenly and she's placed in the foster care system because she has no family or little did she know she has no family. And it's just a very beautiful portrait of loss and grief told through this young girl's eyes. Um, again, in kind of a way I've, I've never seen before and it's quite heartbreaking yet, yet beautiful. And I just fell in love with it. So I'm promoting a book because I want more people to read, especially filmmakers. How to make friends with the dark. 4.3 out of 5 on Goodreads. I would challenge all the filmmakers to do the 52 books in a year challenge, which is a book a week. Because, I mean, story development is a big part of producing. I mean, all filmmaking. Filmmaking is storytelling. and But yet so many people don't really read and to be a good storyteller, you know, the best place to start is to read and, and you really, like, how do you become a good storyteller? How do you learn how to give notes on a script and rewrite your script? And it's from studying storytelling and the only way to study storytelling is to read, so. Well, that's a perfect segue into a book called Flying Saucers Are Real. <laughs> <laughs> Which uh, is, I don't think exactly, I mean, there's some fascinating storytelling to it, but... Uh, is more of a coffee table style book uh, by Jack Womack. And it is a collection of the kind of paperback books that were printed during the height of like UFO mania. So they were like, you know, paperbacks that people wrote with titles like Men from the Moon in America. Did they come in a Russian satellite? Or uh, UFOs Confidential. Um, I'm just kind of flipping through it. It's basically a collection of just all of the quote-unquote true accounts of people who uh, were said to have been abducted by aliens and kind of the weird subculture of sci-fi writers turned, you know, true crime or true story writers that kind of were trying to capitalize on the um, the UFO phenomena of 50s and 60s. You know, the, the book posits that it's like the advent of the first real meme is the UFO meme. So flying saucers are real is a real treat to just have laying around. Sounds like a real nerdy podcast. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, if you don't want to have a bunch of old UFO ephemera laying around your apartment, you could have one book that puts them all into one place for you. <laughs> great, great recommendations. Um, Rebecca, if we want to find out more about you, do you, you tweet? What's the best place to follow you? Twitter is Reb5, R-E-B-F-I-V-E, or the same on Instagram. And then Dear Producer is Dear Producer across all platforms. Cool. And if uh, any of our listeners are thinking of making an independent film, just tweet at Reb5 and she will talk you out of it. <laughs> just kidding. Yes. Um, cool. Well, you can uh, find out more about the show and everything we talked about at justshootitpodcast.com. We're across all social media at Just Shoot It Pod, and we love to hear your thoughts on everything. So just email us, justshootitpod at gmail.com, or you can leave us a message at 2626 shoot one. Uh, we love getting voicemails, 
if you want to find me, I'm on Instagram at OKaplan. And I'm at Mr. Madamo across all platforms. This episode was produced by Madeline Rosewatt. Our webmaster is Ewan Williams, and you're listening to the music by the Free Music Archive and the artist Chazar. Yes. Cool. Thanks. Thanks, everyone. Cool. <laughs> You literally, or and you went, ooh. I think so. I think it David also did the most spectacular lookbook I've ever seen. I use it when I teach all the time. Ooh. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Want truly hydrated skin? Medocia's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER.